Welcome to the Eyes Up Mindset Podcast, where we explore what it means to grow daily and find our best in every aspect of life. Welcome back to another episode of the Eyes Up Mindset Podcast. I just threatened Jamie that I was going to open with the singing, which I will not put you through, but we appreciate you joining us, whether you're joining us on our audio version of our podcast or our YouTube channel, Eyes Up Mindset, which Jamie, I don't know if you know this. Do you feel like your your life has changed? You're a little bit like a movie star now. Well, I mean, the, the YouTube channel has really had some traffic here. Thanks to um, our most recent guest for for directing that and being awesome to, to make people want to check in and listen. Uh, I, no different today in my mind, right? There's uh, incredible insight here. Once again, as always, that's our goal is to have conversations with people that are doing it, right? That are out there doing the work and are bringing some insights back to you and us, right? Mostly us. Like I, we had a coach in college used to say this when I point a finger at you, I got four coming back at me, right? When we're trying to amplify this message for you, we're really looking in the mirror and amplifying it for ourselves as well. Well, and I think Alex Hutchinson, our guest today, did that for himself. You know, he said, you know, this is stuff that I'm dealing with too. This is daily. I've been, I spent most of my career building to this point where he's a New York Times bestselling author. The book that we talk about today, Endure, it's incredible. Jamie's got it, show it on the camera. Jamie, we'll give it a little plug. But, you know, he said, I, this is stuff that I'm still daily, I work on, you know. And, and so a little bit about Alex, like I said, New York Times bestseller. A competitive runner, uh, two-time Olympic trial um, finalist for, yeah. for in Canada, distance runner. We get into some of that stuff. But overall, a guy that wants to get better, wants to help other people get better, and some incredible nuggets of how we can do that coming up in this conversation. Well, and I think the, the interesting thing, and the thing that I loved about the book as I read it was, yeah, there's a ton of science that supports all of this stuff. And he says it, I'm a skeptic. I, I want to see the evidence, right? And I'm a little bit the same way. I want to see the evidence. I want people to show me that the thing that you just told me is true. But at the same time, right? The anecdotal stuff, the stories, the human experience stuff has tremendous value also. And the human experience points us to the fact that there's something going on in our heads that might limit our performance just as much as anything else going on in our body. And we talk about what that, what that is in the conversation. It's uh, and it was a breakthrough for me as a coach to think about how do I, how do I work on that with my athletes? So really valuable. Now, cool stuff, Alex Hutchinson. Alex, welcome to the eyes up mindset podcast. A pleasure to have you here today. We're excited to chat with you. Thanks a lot, John. I really appreciate the opportunity. I'm looking forward to chatting to you. Uh, you were a competitive athlete in distance running and endurance running for a long time. What was your race of choice? I was an 800 guy personally, so I, I know the pain and terror in the mid-distance races. Were you a 1500 guy at one point? Yeah, I, I probably might. If, if you look at, if you get the, you know, the tables and look up the comparisons and say, what was my best ever race? I was a 1500 guy, so a miler, but uh, full respect for 800 guys, I would say it's half the 
length, but the most painful race possible. That's the one where you suffer the most, in my opinion. I completely agree. And that's a great point because your book, Endure, um, as a coach, I, I wish I'd have had it as an athlete in some ways, allowed me to go to places with athletes about the 800 and the 400 and the mile, specifically those races that are real tests of mental and physical endurance. Um, and, and like I said, right before we got on, I stole a ton of stuff from your book. Um, and I just think it's incredible. The first thing, I think the, the big thing that I stole was this idea of perceived effort and how hard something feels dictates how much we can endure. Can you explain that a little bit and how, I think you had a story in the book about a race where maybe you're, you had a different thing going on where you were maybe lied to a little bit that changed your perception of effort. Yeah, yeah, sure. So first of all, yeah, this idea of perceived effort, it's like, it's one of those things that sounds so obvious that it's like, I, people think it's either really deep or really totally like, of course, because if I tell you that the moment where you, let's say, slow down or give up or say I'm, that that's the moment at which it felt too hard for you. Well, of course, I mean, duh, that's, that's the whole point. But it's, I guess the point that, that I think is really interesting and that scientists have sort of come around to you in the last decade, let's say, is that that is the master switch. How you feel is what determines when you give up. It's not just your muscles reach their limit, so you give up and it also feels hard. It's no. If you think it's too hard, if you feel this is 10 out of 10 on the effort scale, that is the point at which you give up. And what that means is if you, it's like, you can't manipulate the amount of lactate in your muscles. You can't change your muscles, but you can change how hard it feels to you. And because that's affected by all these other factors, by how you think it's going and, and you know, whether you had a good night's sleep last night, yada, yada, yada. So that's where the, the idea is that your limits aren't really your limits. It's, they're, they're just, they're reflecting how you, what you, what you feel about your limits. That's so incredible. I don't know, I, I was going around in circles there, but, but it's, it's a hard thing to, to explain simple because it seems so obvious on the surface. Well, and your book does an incredible job of, of digging into that. And your writing just generally has, has illuminated that where it's like our limits, we rarely get there, right? We rarely ever get there. What is something that you have experienced that, that feels like I should have, or I could have gone farther had I known some of this beforehand? Yeah, maybe like every race I've ever run. Because <laughs> everyone, I think this is a really, really common feeling. Like, let's say you're training for a competition. I'll stick with running because that's what I'm familiar with. There's nothing in life that you want more than to run a fast race, to beat another runner, whatever. You get into this race, you try as hard as you can. And for most of us, at, at some point, you reach that point where maybe you're not going to win the Olympics or but someone is pulling away from you and you're like, ah, oh, I wish I could go with them, but there is nothing I can do. My legs will not move. Then you cross the finish line and you're out of breath for 30 seconds. And then you're walking away and you're like, what the heck? What, what happened? Why, why didn't I try harder? I'm still alive. Like I didn't die. I'm still walking. I could go run it again right now. And you, and you beat yourself up. And you're like, why didn't I try? Next time, I'm not going to leave anything out there. Next time, I'm going to run till I die. But next time, it's the same thing. I mean, maybe not quite, maybe you get a little better. Maybe you squeeze a little closer. But the truth is, it's like, unless something seriously goes wrong, like if there's some, you know, medical thing going on, it's almost impossible to run yourself like unconscious. It's like, we cannot 
just voluntarily push ourselves to the point that our legs actually can't move anymore. And so uh, for me, that this is where this, you know, from this, this is where this interest came from is, is a career of races where you're in the, in the moment you're trying, you feel like you could not possibly do any more. And then the moment you slack off, you're like, Oh, I, I feel fine. I, you know, it was a false alarm. I wasn't actually about to die. Well, it's, that reminds me of a quote in your book and I'm just going to read it so I don't screw it up, but it's, it talks about self-talk and it's, if I could go back in time after the course of my own running career, after a decade of writing about the latest research and endurance training, the single biggest piece of advice I would give to my doubt filled younger self, which I think all of us can relate to would be to pursue motivational self-talk training with diligence and with no snickering, which I think is also true that we can all relate to. But I think that's when you, when you just told that story or, or, or gave that example, that's what was going through my head is, okay, there's a message. There's some sort of self-talk that says, I don't have any more. I can't go more. And then you finish and it's like, well, wait, now I can. So maybe talk a little bit about that quote and the self-talk. How did you get to that seminal moment where you say, this is, as I look back, this is the thing I wish I would have done. Yeah. And I, you know, so it's some context first. I, we had a sports psychologist when I was in college, running in college, uh, working with our team. And we just thought it was the biggest joke imaginable. We thought it was hilarious. Uh, and, and, you know, no one took it seriously. No one really tried to execute it. And I'm by nature, I'm like, I am a skeptical guy. That, that's the, the whole basis of my career is I'm a science journalist who asks for evidence, who is like, you, Everyone loves ice baths. I love ice baths. Well, what's the evidence? Does an ice bath really help? What about stretching? What about this? What about that? I want to know what the evidence is. So you're going to tell me like, well, as long as you think happy thoughts, you're going to be an amazing athlete. It's like, okay, thank you for that, that message. It's, it's, it doesn't, it's the, the complete opposite of my instincts and intuition about what should make sense. But my, so my job for the last 15 years has been basically sports science journalist. And so I'm interested in like, okay, the ice baths and the training techniques and all this. But the more I dig, the more I dug into it and looked at the research, then it's like, oh, actually people are studying this idea of like self-talk of, of recognizing when you're telling yourself, this is too hard. You can't do this. There's no way you can beat that guy. He always beats you. You know, just slow down. This is, we all go, we, and we all have those, most of us have those thoughts during races. It's like, oh, you can just identify those thoughts and then spend some time practicing more positive thoughts. And then you can do studies to show that this actually works. And then you can have a theoretical explanation. This what Jamie was talking about earlier, this idea of perceived effort, that if you're asking yourself, how hard does this feel? And the dominant thought is in your head is this feels really hard. Then you're going to say, yeah, this feels like 9.5 out of 10. I better slow down. Whereas if you're thinking I've done such good training, this is hard, but this is how it's supposed to feel. Everyone else feels the same as I do. I can do this then you're going to be like, oh, that's 8.5. It's hard. It doesn't make it easy or anything like that. But it just reframes your, your, your framework. So you, you put together the experimental evidence, the theoretical framework, uh, and it just, you realize, oh, maybe I, you know, yeah, maybe I should have taken this more seriously. And where's my time machine so I can give it another try? You talk about uh, one of the stories in the book is a heat timed trial, like a time trial related to where the temperature is super high. And these cyclists, these elite cyclists do a time to exhaustion test. And that little bit of motivational self-talk actually changed their capacity, right? 
So yeah, this is one of the great, this is one of the studies that kind of turned, changed my mind on this. They gave the cyclists one week of self-talk training. So basically, and, and it's not like one week from nine to five. It's like, they, here's a workbook. Think of some more positive things to say during your workouts, practice those things. Think of when you want to say them during this test. Cause you, you have different things that you want to say halfway through versus near the end, make it become second nature, come back a week later. Um, and, they, and, and they had a control group that got sort of just generic, like journal about your thoughts, whatever, you know, think about your mental skills. And if I remember correctly, the time to exhaustion changed by something like 39% in, in the group that got uh, motivational self-talk. And we're talking trained cyclists. These aren't just people who, you know, are going to make automatic gains. And they were able to push their core temperature. Uh, like they did these tests with, uh, with rectal thermometers inserted. They were able to push, put, put, push their core temperature about half a degree higher. And for, for core temperature, that's significant. So what this is telling us is, is not just that they, they did better, but they were able to push their bodies harder and their perceived effort stayed the same. Because you know when you do a time to exhaustion test, you quit when, it, like we were saying before, you quit when you feel that has, it has become unbearable. By changing the words in their head, they changed the point at which it became unbearable. And I think the thing that strikes me about that is you said it's not a nine to five motivational self-talk training, you know, and a phrase we use often is it's simple. It's just not that easy, right? That the, that sounds like such a simple, Hey, here's a workbook. Here's, we're going to teach you some basic skills. And then to see that jump of, you know, 39% and a half a degree, like, and how that impacts your physical performance is incredible. Well, I think that you said something important, which is it's simple, but it's not that easy. I, I, you know, I talk to people sometimes and they're like, so, how, you know, how have you changed your life since, since you found, you know, discovered this research? It's like, ah, uh, yeah. wow. I actually came across a really good uh, expression for this. It's called the GI Joe fallacy. Cause when I was a kid, after the end of every GI Joe cartoon, it was, you know, so Jimmy don't, you know, play in traffic. And Jimmy says, well now, oh, okay, now I know. And then GI Joe says, no, and knowing is half the battle. And the GI Joe fallacy is believing that just cause you know something, You've, you've, you're kind of halfway there to already implementing. It's like, no, knowing it is one step, but you still have to implement it. And it takes, you know, for things like self-talk or, you know, there's stuff like mindfulness training, which very buzzy, but really powerful concept, non-judgmental self-awareness of, you know, being able to experience discomfort without panicking. It's great stuff, but just reading a book about it doesn't actually, or even writing a book about it, yeah. it doesn't fix it. You still have to do some, do the work at some point. Well, and you, you said that you began the book in 2009. It was published in 2018. You spent a ton of time. And I love the, the general concept of the book. Here are the things that we think are limitations, right? It's the heat, heat exhaustion, dehydration, muscle breakdown. Um, I have no air left runners, right? I can't, I don't have the oxygen to do this. Yeah. VO2 max is, is maxed out, right? And you show that actually these things are much more complexly connected than we ever thought. And a lot of it comes from some of the beliefs we might have, but I think the thing that is striking to me working with athletes and teams and people every day on some of the mindset changes we can potentially make to improve our performance is how, you know, you said nine years and you still maybe don't do it 15 years of writing about this stuff and you still don't implement it on a day-to-day -day basis. If someone were to ask you, how do I train in such a way so that it might feel easier, that I feel less effort or some of the 
implementation tools that you've found from the book, what, what have you taken or what would you advise beyond something like self-talk? Yeah. So, I mean, first thing I would just say is that the, actually the, as you guys know, this is the base of the pyramid that's really important, right? So first of all, it's not all in your head. You can't just sit in a chair and do it. But second of all, even what's the best brain training, the best brain training is good hard physical training where you're committed to, to accepting discomfort and, and seeking out discomfort sometimes, right? Like yeah. if you want to learn to tolerate more pain or more discomfort, do that three times a week or whatever. doesn't mean you have to go kill yourself every day, but right. Like you, there's some, some of the really early research on athletes and pain tolerance. And there's a lot of research showing that athletes can handle more pain than, than everyone else. And, but it's trained. And so even with elite international level athletes, their pain tolerance waxes and wanes throughout the training cycle. Their, their pain tolerance is highest right before a big competition. It's lower in the off season. So it's like, it's not something you learn once. It's something you, you are building all the time during your training. So I think understanding that is key. But then beyond that, like there's the self-talk stuff, doing it in a formal way, I think is actually, that would be my number one uh, piece of advice. I would also say some sort of mindfulness approach, whether it's an eight-week mindfulness training program, there's some sports specific ones like MPEAK is a sports specific one or whether it's getting, you know, the Headspace app or something like that and just doing a little work in, in that way. It's just, I'm specifically talking about like, this is more for sustained endurance efforts, I would say. That's where mindfulness probably has, uh, uh, maybe, no, maybe that's not true. Maybe even in, in like, I'm just thinking like, if you're trying to lift a car, right? It's not so much about <laughs> being in, in the sort of Zen, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm one with the world kind of thing, but you don't lift a car without doing a lot of sustained, hard training over a long period of time too. Well, I think about, we work with, you know, tennis teams and wrestling teams and like, there's a lot of hard work in a two hour practice where you need to not check out. You need to come back and be in the present moment. And in some sense for a sport like that, there's also, I mean, this is a whole nother maybe branch of sports psychology, but you have to be able to handle a bad play and having made a mistake and running. It's not like, Oh no, I took two right strides and I forgot to use my left foot. Like running, it's either you're going fast enough or you're not in tennis. You double fault. Yeah. Uh, you have to be able to, to clear your head. So I think that, I mean, and that, again, this is sort of a different skill, but it's related to being able to, to not freak out over negative input, I think. But, but at the same time, and I'm, I, I mean, I don't know if you can tell this from the video here, but I have said this on the podcast several times. I am not a runner necessarily. Um, but, you know, I think you mentioned, yes, those other sports, you have to be able to recover from a bad play or, a, you know, double fault or something like that. But the sustained ability to keep your focus on a pot, you know, the self-talk that is helpful, not hurtful. Whereas, you know, in tennis, you get another point right away and you're kind of, there's, there's a physical representation of moving on in some regard, whereas running, you're just going right. And it's a constant cycle. I, I would imagine. I mean, again, not, <laughs> so not from heard, my yeah. own experience. No, it, it, it really, like the analogy that, that people often use is like, it, it's, it's holding your finger as close as possible to the flame of a candle. And what, what that means, we, we're very hardwired to pull our finger away. You don't even think about it. And the moment you take your mind off it, your finger moves away from the candle. And that's, that, that, that's the, tr the truth with sports, like running with no brakes, where it's like, 
the moment you're not thinking about it, you're, you're slowing down without even thinking about it. People often say, Hey, you know, running is, I, I love running with my, you know, my tunes or whatever, because it feels easier. It's like, yeah, that's because it is easier. You're going slower. <laughs> like it, it, and that, which is fine. Like in running 80% of the time, you want to be going nice and slow, but when you're, when you're trying to get after it, you have to be thinking about, you have to be holding your finger in the flame. You can't just be distracted. So it's, I mean, it, 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 it's, yeah, I mean, your mind can water a little bit, but the, the point is, it's like, yeah, it requires sustained focus. And that is actually very, very mentally exhausting, as well as beyond this sort of physical challenge. Well, I love it. In the book, you quote something where it's like, if you want to run a five minute mile, like you got to go and run a five minute mile. Like you have, you know, if you want to run five minutes per mile in a marathon, like you got to go and run a ton of miles at five minutes. You got to hold that finger to the flame. Otherwise you're never going to get there. And I, like we are a mental skills and performance bent sort of people, but we are also crucially aware of how you have to do the work. You have to go there and do it. And I just think, um, you know, without that, it's it's a non-starter, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. And it's it, so again, I, I my world, of, my professional world is writing about sports science, and so even just moving beyond the sort of mental versus physical, the, there's all the ways that people try and enhance the performance, whether it's supplements or whether it's the latest like massage gun, anti-inflammatory, inflatable, whatever. And part of me loves that stuff. It's really cool to try and think about what are the mechanisms of fatigue there that can help training adaptations. But it's like, okay, what, what is the, you know, how is this pyramid formed? What are, where are we spending most of our time? And if you're not doing the work, like then it doesn't matter. It, getting the details right is totally irrelevant if you're not actually just putting in the work. So I'm going to, I'm going to summarize for a second, a guy that has written about sports science for 15 years and loves this stuff, right? Loves the stuff says no shortcuts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's an existential problem for me because my whole job is writing about the shortcuts. Um, yeah. But in the end, you know, I've, the, the longer I do it, the more I'm like, ah, you know what, even though there's a study that says this supplement might help, how many studies, supplements have I seen in the past where there's a couple studies and then it kind of peters out because it turns out that one just got lucky. And so uh, it's not that I don't think that the details matter. I absolutely yeah, do. Sure. But it's a, it, it's a question of keeping them in proportion and, and in perspective and understanding where, where the meat is and what, you know, I was going to say where the meat is and where the icing is. I guess that's a mixed metaphor. Where, where the meat <laughs> and where the, I don't know, the, the trimmings are. Yeah. No, that reminds me of a quote I, I read in a conversation you had not, not too long ago. And you said, it's not all in our head. It's 100% in our head and it's 100% physical. It's it's both. You can't, like you said, you can't just get all the details right and then physically go expect to perform. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you know, look, if I had to choose between being, uh, you know, incredibly fit but mentally weak or being like mentally tough but but like hadn't got off the couch in 10 years – I'd probably choose the body, but, but really, if you want to get, if you want to be competitive at any reasonable level, you have to be, uh, you know, on top of both. And some people are absolutely gifted in the same way that some people have physical gifts where they're, you know, they come off the couch and they're in great shape. You, you look back and, and it's like, well, why did, you know, why did Babe Ruth or whatever, not need a, a mental skills coach? It's like, well, look, some people are extraordinarily gifted at knowing how to push themselves and knowing how to 
you know, focus, bounce back from adversity, all that. Most of us could be better than we are. Most of us can, can, can improve that aspect of our games. One of the things that I think you've been incredibly fortunate, you got to go to Nike's breaking two with, um, is that in Italy or the most recent one was in Austria, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. The one I went to was in Italy. Yeah. And you got to see an attempt at a two hour marathon, which is, you know, the, the Holy grail since the four minute mile has been, has been interrupted. What was that like to be there on this day where, you know, and since then Kipchoge has done it right. And he's got there, but had to be an incredible thing as a runner to be, to be there. Yeah. You know, what, what was really neat is that I got to spend about six months leading up to that race, uh, sort of behind the scenes, getting access to the scientists and the runners and asking them how it was going. And it, it look, it, this sort of, it, it was a publicity stunt for Nike. Let's, let's, you know, acknowledge that it was an, an advertising thing, but it was also a science project and they were absolutely reimagining everything, trying to think what possibly could we do to make a human or to help a human run faster. And so it was very cool to, to, just to think they were just thinking of off the wall ideas and, you know, Hey, we always run marathons in the morning. What if we ran it in the evening when the temperature is dropping as the runners are getting hotter? What if, and you know, the reason they didn't do that is because then the marathoners would have to figure out what to eat all day, which is a complicated problem. But they, you know, and they, they were looking into just every detail of how humans get faster. And then it all came together. It was at this formula one track in Italy. Um, lots of, sort of betting and predictions before that. And I, I think my prediction was that they would run about 202, 201.30. And uh, and Kipchoge ended up being on two hour pace until almost the very end. He ended up missing by 25 seconds. And I will have to say, even though it was a contrived sort of commercial exhibition race, it was one of the most electrifying live sports events I've ever been to. It was just like, uh, he did something that no one thought he could do. And you know, you, you really, really like that nobody, even well-informed observers were convinced he could not do what he ended up doing. And, and you don't get many chances in life to see something like that up close. And the electricity of the, he might actually do this. Yeah. Yeah. When, once he got past halfway and, and there were three runners in the race, two of them didn't even make it to halfway. And we we're like, Oh boy, this is going to be a disaster. I can't believe I flew all the way to Italy for this. Yeah. And then, you know, so that's 13 miles, then 15 miles passes, 17 miles and 19 miles. Like, oh, hey, whoa, 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 what is going on here? Because, but as soon as he passed halfway, he was setting like world records with every stride. No one had ever been, or world, world bests at least, no one had ever run that far at that pace. And he just kept on going. So yeah, that, that ended up being, I, I, again, I'm, I'm a cynical guy. And, you know, I've, I've mentioned like five times already in, in this conversation that like, oh it's a commercial thing it was a, a stunt but it was also very very uh, kind of meaningful and, and exciting to see and even as a non-runner i mean i get excited about that just seeing someone push the limits in in anything you know i've always said watching people compete at the elite highest level of anything i'm in you know because it, it just gets my my blood going but alex what's so now post book What's something you're working on right now? What's something you're passionate about? You're digging into in terms of kind of what you're get, getting after. Yeah, you know, it's gosh, it's it's three years since the the first hardcover of the the book came out, and it, boy, if you told me three years ago that I still wouldn't know what the next big project is, I, you know, I would have punched myself in the face. But um, 
I'm trying to figure out what the next book is. And it's tricky because the, for Endure, it was like, it was a lifetime, right? Like I, I, I was a runner for so many years and then I spent about 10 or 15 years kind of um, building up material on this topic. And I'm glad I did because, you know, the, the book I could have written in 2010 would have been very different from the book I wrote for 2018. But I'm trying to find something that fills my passion the same way. And, and in general terms, the direction I'm thinking about is uh, Endure was a lot about how do we push our limits? How do we push our limits back? And what I'm interested in next is like, why do we push our limits? Like, <laughs> what? And, and this, look, I'm a 45 year old guy who still goes out and, and, you know, hammers a couple hard workouts a week and runs pretty much every day. And, you know, the question pops to my mind, man, like, what, what, why am I doing this? What is it? Yeah. What, what does this give me? I know it gives me something like, I, you know, it's not just habit, um, but it's hard to put your finger on. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to sort of think carefully about what it is, what, what, what it is, what it means to pursue hard goals, to be looking for adventure, to be trying to explore new terrain and, and, and what the, what we know about that, that the psychology and the neuroscience of that. Well, I'll tell you, I will, I will be in line to order. I'll be on the pre-order list. Cause I, I too have those questions about my pursuits, right? What is it that, that drives me to, de- to desire excellence in all of these random areas that seem unconnected, you know, I, or, um, you know, I, it, clearly I have a, a suspicion that it's just, a, a, a lifetime of, of working towards that goal, um, in different areas, whether it be sports or my career or whatever, but how do we do that as in relationships with people also, you know, like I, those are questions that I'm asking. <laughs> And how do you, how do you then end up being happy if, if, if you're always looking towards the next destination, you know what I mean? Like, sure. uh, what I, I think about this in career terms too. It's like Endure was, was more successful than I expected. And so now it's like, what is it that I'm looking for? Do I need more validation or like, do I need more pats on the head or, or what, what, you know, anyway, it's, it, it, these are hard questions that people have struggled with for a long time, but, uh, yeah, it's yeah. a complex identity issue. Right. I, I did this thing, you know, I think about sports ending for athletes at 18 or 22 or 31 or whatever it might be i've been this for how long and who am i now you know and what what things do i long for that fill up my cup you know i just a tremendous question and if you and if you get cool answers i would love to read it so <laughs> I, I, I promise i'll have it ready for the year 2050 at, at latest and we can talk about it again <laughs> oh maybe they'll have something much cooler than podcasts or we can be in person one time yeah. that'd be great Alex, thanks for your time. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, John. Thanks, Gina. I really appreciate the conversation. Thanks again to Alex for joining us and sharing his wisdom and his struggle too, Jamie. And I think that's a key part of what we talk about a lot is, and he, he mentioned it, knowing it, knowing is not necessarily half the battle, right? The GI Joe fallacy. It's not half the battle. It's a step and there's many, many more steps after that. Well, and you have to go and do this stuff. I like, I think, you know, I was being a little bit facetious when I say in the interview, like, so there's no shortcuts, right? And he's like, well, I love looking for those things. I think we all do. I think we all want to say, if it can be easier somehow, show me how, right? But in reality, the secret is the work. It's the time. It's the hours. It's, you know, as a runner, go run, spend time on the road, like learn what your limits are out there and then find out 
you know, and you said, as we were talking about the two hour marathon, I love watching that stuff. Why do we love watching when somebody does something we didn't think possible? Because it then shows us that it might be possible for us also. Well, and there's nothing wrong with finding a better way to do things, but it can't be at the expense of doing the work, right? It can't be instead of even working, working on house renovations, right? The, the right tool makes it more efficient, makes your job easier. You still have to do the thing, right? Yeah. And so it don't sacrifice the work trying to find the shortcut. I think that was you know, what I got out of what you just said and what he said, it can't be at the expense of doing the work. And then the other thing, Jamie, that, that I love the phrase that he talked about was, you know, holding your finger to the flame. How do we get as close to the flame for as long as we can without getting burnt? And man, what a, what a great challenge in whatever thing you're pursuing, right? How do you hold your finger to the flame? Well, and, and beyond that, right? Like knowing what's good for you, what stresses you, what can go beyond, like, can you check in with yourself, even when the finger is right there to say, this isn't as bad as I thought, right? That's let's tie the perceived effort thing. This thing, I can do more, right? It hurts and it's, but I can do more. And can we, can we find that place where we might have to endure beyond something. And it might not be physical. It just might not. But are we willing to sign up, do the work, go there again, hold the finger to the flame for a second longer? Uh, an incredible challenge. Appreciate you, Jamie. Appreciate our conversation. Thanks for listening. Do us a favor. Go rate, review, subscribe. Check out our stuff. It helps us out. Spread the word, and as always, live eyes up.